The Ryan Tuberty Show on RTE Radio 1 with Elevon Merchant Services. Growing your business is easy peasy with us by your side. The Ryan Tuberty Show on RTE Radio 1 with Elevon Merchant Services. Business growth isn't 9 to 5, so we're here 24-7. After 9.30 and joined by Brendan Kelly, he's a professor of psychiatry at Trinity College Dublin and the author of a wonderful new book. It's called In Search of Madness, a psychiatrist travel, travels rather through the history of mental illness. Brendan, welcome and thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for having me. It's, 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 I've always been intrigued by psychiatry as a, as a job and as a, as a world in which to inhabit. So tell me, at what point in your medical training did you think... Because you've got so many places you can go when you study medicine, so many. Uh, did you have another idea of somewhere you'd like to go and then something happened or was it always psychiatry? Well, I wanted to be either a psychiatrist or an economist uh, for some reason. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> um, it never made much sense and I wanted both of these things while I was at medical school and I was a little uncertain. But but then one day when I was um, studying to be a doctor and doing my psychiatry, a community mental health nurse took me out in the car for a day to visit people at home where people with, you know, enduring mental illness, severe schizophrenia were being treated at home. And in the book, I talk about a trip out to the middle of Connemara with this nurse in his car where we met this man working in a field and he had schizophrenia, Mm. but he had been out of hospital for many, many decades, having been in hospital for a long time. And he was being treated at home with medication and with support. And he was standing there in the sunshine. It was a weekend like the weekend just gone in the West. And... um, and he, he was well. He, he had a serious illness. He was being treated effectively at home in his field, on his farm, living his life. And he had severe schizophrenia at the same time. Yeah. And just I was I was just flabbergasted. This took treatment out of the hospital. It was someone living their life. It was inspiring. And on, on that day um, in Connemara, I decided I was going to be a psychiatrist. And here I am. Amazing. You, you just saw the crystal clear benefits of good medication, good uh, doctoring, if you will, yeah. and the ability to solve what so for, for centuries people thought were was incurable or Absolutely. impossible. I mean, it's still a very difficult condition, schizophrenia. Sure. The treatments are imperfect and delivering treatment can be hard. But just that, se- that day, I saw such a positive outcome. I saw such possibility for a, a condition which, as you say, is in many ways so mysterious. Lots of people are almost even frightened to talk about it. And yet I saw that positive change is possible, treatment is possible, and I became a psychiatrist. The, the world, if, for want of a better expression, but the area of mental illness is such a conundrum, isn't it? Because you wonder how far you can go to treat it. Um, and it also so, it's so individual and so personal. Um, does it be, is it a frustrating job? Oh, it's a wonderful job for the very reason you just outlined. We don't really understand how the human brain works biologically. We have a lot of information about it, a lot of neuroscience, um, but we don't really understand why we think what we think, why we do what we do. And if you add to that, if you like, when the brain is having a bad day or when it moves into a state of illness, we understand even less when things, you know, slip out of sync that little bit. And then the next step is that we try and treat it, which is more difficult again. So there are so 
many uncertainties, so much that's not known and so much that we need to do, that the field is vast and that either that attracts you or, or that makes you anxious. And that vastness, that unknown attracts me because I see clear evidence that we can help despite the lack of knowledge treatments work. It's, it, I, I'm thinking of Ernest Shackleton only because he wanted to go into the great unknown and wanted to go to places that nobody could possibly get to. And, you know, there's an arrogance to humanity, isn't there, in terms of how much we think we know or how much we should know. And yet we're surrounded constantly by questions, constantly by uncertainty and lack of knowledge. Yes, we are. And, you know, there are still things that we can do in this great field of things that we don't know. Um, but we do need to find out more. We need to put things on a firmer footing, a little bit, you know, more science, more research and so forth. But in the meantime, um, there are treatments that help, treatment programmes that are really good. And I go through various treatments uh, in, in the book. I talk about bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, depression and all of these conditions. Um, and that's what attracts me. The fact that despite not knowing so much, there is a great deal that we can do. And like any, this what's so great about your book is that for me, it's history, okay, but also the combination of history and, and psychiatry. And you, you make it very accessible because you, you, you go right back, um, as far back as you possibly can to, to try and discover when did um, the, the human species decide that there was such a thing as, I don't know what they called it then, but mental illness or certainly a challenge to the, the brain or the mind. How far did you go back to or did, where did you get to, to where you discovered some class of line in the sand that says it begins here? Well, it's it's so far because the further back you go, the more traces of this you find. You know, in all the great religious scriptures, the Bible and all, all religious traditions, there are there's talk of people who were people who were mad, to use the words that were used at the time. There's talk of people who um, had this interpreted as divine inspiration, divine possession. And then as medical traditions emerged, particularly in the Islamic world, you found a desire to care, a desire to look after people. Um, but always, always with mental illness also came a desire to contain uh, care and custody. In every tradition, there was not only the rhetoric of caring, there was also the practice of custody. And of course, this reached its pinnacle in the 1800s when many countries, including our own, opened up enormous mental hospitals, which persisted and still have a, you know, an echoing legacy today. So it's as far back as you can go. You find people concerned about madness and losing touch with reality, but always the impulse to care and to help has been coupled with um, custody, control and s some pretty scary sounding treatments that were uh, implemented. Well, that's what I wanted to mention, because the third C I'd add to care and custody is cruelty uh, and there was a, there was a terrible sense if you, you at one point if you were if you were let's say mentally ill you were a witch uh, you were definitely othered um, and you might be sent off to some institutions uh, which in fact and you, you talk about this sometimes even if you were completely uh, sane quote unquote you were sent mm. there because you were as a matter of convenience to society or politics so it's it, 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 let's talk a little bit about the cruelty of uh, of your uh, yeah. that you came across well, I mean, what happened was in the 1800s, big asylums were built, large mental hospitals were built all over the world. And once you build a large institution, it will be immediately full of people. Societies and communities use institutions. So, for example, in Ireland, for much of the history of the mental hospitals, 
you didn't need a medical certificate to be admitted. Uh, you didn't need a doctor's note. Um, so an asylum board could admit someone and discharge somebody. And you had uh, communities um, using the institution. So there was a phenomenon in, in Ireland called wintering in, where if a family had someone who might have been mentally ill, might have been intellectually disabled, or might have been just odd and eccentric, mm-hmm. um, would be put into the uh, mental hospital uh, for the winter and taken out in the autumn when they were needed on the farm again and then put back in again in the winter. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, and go on, please. So, 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 what you had was the social institutions being used by communities. Doctors became more involved as time went on, and I wish I could say that we made an enormous difference when we became involved, but we didn't really. Yeah. Um, you cannot stop societies using institutions, and in Ireland, we used so many institutions. You know, uh, be it a mother and baby homes, be it uh, industrial schools, Magdalen laundries. But interestingly, the Roman Catholic Church did not run our mental hospitals, which were the biggest institutions of all of these by a very long chalk. So the usual, the the current narrative in Irish history, which is that we blame the Roman Catholic Church, and and indeed it is blameworthy in many respects, uh, but but we don't have that uh, for the largest institutions in our history, which were the mental hospitals. In this country. In this country. Um, before we get there, let's to, to those who don't know the origin of the word bedlam. Um, let's go there um, in figuratively, but physically you went to the hospital. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so Bedlam was one of the earliest uh, psychiatric hospitals, certainly in Europe. Um, it's located in London. It's moved around London um, and it became notorious. It very large, notorious institution, uh, which is now doesn't operate as such. But there is a, a museum set up to the history of psychiatry and you can travel there to London to see it. And it's, it's a very uh, salutary uh, place to visit. It's very beautiful as many of these um, institutions were. And you can see this in Ireland now. If anyone goes over to TU Dublin, you can see Grange Gorman is now restored to its original beauty uh, when it was an institution. And it's the same in Bedlam in London. Um, this enormous institution, people detained there for long periods of time and the history now very appropriately explored in, in a very sensitive uh, and moving exhibition that's well worth going to see. And it, it's it's Bethlehem, isn't it? Bedlam. It's, yes. It's just a squeezed down version of it. Yes. If, if yes. someone says it's Bedlam, there today. It's because yeah. of the... It's because of the old hospital and, uh, you know, it, it led the way in lots of things. There was a practice, uh, for example, of members of the public going to view uh, patients in Bedlam, to view people who were severely mentally ill. It was seen as a form of entertainment and amusement. It was also seen as a form of income for the institution. So again, you have this very uneasy relationship between the institution and the community that it serves or the community that created it. Um, you mentioned uh, Grange Gorman there, which of course, uh, lots of experimental treatments carried out in Ireland and and um, you'd say that from its inception, the hospital at Grange Gorman was to the forefront of therapeutic innovations in asylum care. Um, and did we, uh, do, are we, did we cover ourselves in glory when it came to mental illness in the 20th century in Ireland? Well, you know, by the time the 20th century came around here in Ireland, we had about 20,000 people in our mental institutions, which is more per head of population than any other country in the world before or since. So from the get go, we were in a bad position. We had these huge institutions. Why so many? Like why per, per, per capita did you? 
Well, it certainly wasn't because of an epidemic of mental illness. It was because of an epidemic of mental hospitals. We just love building institutions and putting each other in them. Oh and, and we, <laughs> That's a very stark thing to say, yeah. But, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had some very bad mental health legislation as well, which we kept changing. Um, but we had this huge reliance on institutions. I mean, if you take the town of Balnasloe in 1940, mm-hmm. the town had a population of 5,300 people. And of the those 2,000 were patients in St. Bridget's. So if you've that number of people, patients in the hospital, everyone else in the town either works in it, they supply it or they're in some way dependent upon it. So if you can imagine, Ryan, a local politician suggesting shutting down the hospital or scaling it down, they're going nowhere. It's, it's an economic powerhouse. The town is absolutely dependent upon it. So no one's going, you know, very few people have an interest in shutting it down or yeah. scaling it down. So when you say, why were the institutions so big? We used them and communities used them. And I mean, we as, as in societies, not, 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 not necessarily the medical professional, though we were clearly involved. Yes. Um, but we we did introduce a series of therapies here in Ireland uh, as, as, as around the world. We introduced something called malaria therapy in Grange Gorman in the 1920s that involved uh, importing mosquitoes and giving patients malaria in order to treat a condition um, uh, known as general paralysis of the insane or advanced syphilis. So uh, that, that took place in Ireland. And folks, let's take that to the end. So the malaria does what to the patient? Or Well, the patient has to develop malaria, has to get treated with quinine and recover from the malaria. And after that, it turns out that their mental illness, as it were, um, had improved. Um, this was known for some time. A physical illness could produce an improvement in a mental illness. And this malaria treatment treatment uh, was introduced in 1917 and the instigator of it won a Nobel Prize in 1927 for it. And the most amazing part of this story, Ryan, is that it seems to have worked. Right. It seems it did reduce the death rate from advanced syphilis in the asylums. So the history is a very complicated one and full of unexpected stories like that. Jumping back to, well, you said 1940, so we're still in, in the time of World War Two, and you, you talk about uh, Action T4. Yeah. Um, which is what? So there was an idea in the early 1900s that mental illness was due to degeneration, that biological and genetic degeneration uh, produced severe illness and was filling the asylums. So people wanted to empty the asylums and particularly in Germany, a programme of sterilisation of people with mental illness was introduced in the 1930s. And then this escalated, of course, in 1939 um, to a a programme of killing uh, people with mental illness and neurological disorders orders um, and all told um, between 200,000 and 300,000 people with mental illness were killed and um, murdered as it were as, as, as part of the uh, Nazi programme um, between 1939 and 1945. Um, this was consistent with eugenics which was a movement in um, psychiatry at the time but not interestingly in Ireland. The idea of eugenics didn't particularly catch on among the Irish asylum doctors. Were lobotomies carried out in Ireland a lot or can, can you quantify how, how that worked? Or? Yes, some lobotomies were carried out. So lobotomy was a, a, a brain surgery introduced in 19, 
the 1930s. And again, the instigator, uh, Monitz in Portugal, won a Nobel Prize for this, um, which, which involved severing or cutting parts of the connections in the brain. They were carried out particularly in the US, most famously on Rosemary Kennedy. Um, sister of uh, John F. Kennedy and Robert. Um, in Ireland, uh, there wasn't as much by way of lobotomy. Some hundreds of lobotomies were performed uh, in the Richmond Hospital, uh, which is now, uh, uh, you know, that lovely red brick uh, building yes, over yeah. there. It served as a courtroom for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were some lobotomies carried out in Ireland. And in in the book, I do recount the history of a man who had a lobotomy and and said that it actually helped him. Yeah. But he was very much the exception. Lobotomy was the biggest thing single mistake in the history of psychiatry and lives were ruined by it, including that of uh, Rosemary Kennedy. Yeah, desperate. She, of course, was ended up in the care of nuns and essentially, you know, sent yeah. away and, and, and nothing. She she was considered to be too lively for the family, I think Joe Kennedy Sr. thought and yes. said lobotomise my daughter and uh, and be done with it. Yes, uh, I mean she, she, <coughs> does, she does appear to have been very lively and had some difficulties but then in 1941 at the age of 23 she had the lobotomy uh, everything got worse, she needed institutional care for the rest of her life and she died at the age of 86 in 2005 with severe physical and mental problems and incontinence for all those decades as a result of the surgery. Um, I remember uh, I, I always uh, if I'm ever taught by psychiatry I always mention my father who was is, as you may or may not know was a psychiatrist in, in John of God's for many years and he often said and it was a really profound thing he said to me when I was a teenager which was he said if you have a few pints enjoy yourself but he said try and stay off cannabis and, and, and that kind of thing because he says I deal with too many too many young people who have gone psychotic from and it scared me away from it forever all of the yeah. drugs actually bar the booze but uh, he said uh, you know um, just be careful because um, it, as I say too many um, good people are lost to yeah. that you know and some people can do it and get away with it and, and enjoy mm. and that's what it is I'm not being down on it necessarily and, but it's for the same token it was a it was a scary warning because you talk about it too. You say that's that that's that's a that's a tricky one. Yes, yes, uh, I do. And I mean, I came to train in psychiatry in Dublin. I remember your your, your father saying similar things. Uh, to, to be oh, honest, and are. being very clear about it. So cannabis is a very interesting one. The research is now very very clear that cannabis presents a risk to mental health that people can become psychotic, depressed, anxious when they use it. Um, it's funny when you talk to anyone who uses cannabis and you say, you know, and if I say, you know, it can affect the mental health of some people, they all say, yes, of course, I know that. Yeah. They all know somebody who became paranoid, went into their house and hasn't come out. Um, and the research now overwhelmingly supports that. And I talk about this in the book and uh, the fact that cannabis uh, presents a risk to mental health. What's less clear, though, is what we do with that information. You know, not everything that's bad for us is banned. Not everything is illegal that's yeah. bad for us. Things like cigarettes and alcohol. And look and what so alcohol does to people, too. Obviously, you know, we can get into that uh, debate. But yeah, I mean, it, but, it, but now, it's yeah. something of a separate debate, yes, what we is, do yeah. with the information. But we can be clear that cannabis presents a risk to mental health. And I do talk about this uh, in, in the book a good deal, as you point you out. You do. And you say that cannabis is the most common illegal drug that I come across in psychosis. It, yeah, psychosis is, uh, you know, severe mental illness involving a, a, a disconnect with reality in at least one respect. And to be honest, I very rarely come across a young man with psychosis who isn't smoking cannabis. It's almost a given. Remarkable. Um, you, you, you say that the effects of mental illness are exacerbated. I think that's, that's uh, something I want to light upon for a moment. Exacerbated by homelessness, discrimination, unemployment, imprisonment, and social exclusion. So if somebody is going through life with mild, let's call it mild mental illness, they might be treatable in a certain manner, 
But if they have these things I've just mentioned, quoting you, um, this will just take them down a terrible rabbit hole. Yeah, is, I, that, is that a fair appraisal of... That's absolutely accurate. I mean, we live in a society that is hugely intolerant of and unforgiving of mental illness. People with, um, if we take the example of schizophrenia, increased risk of homelessness, increased risk of early death, increased risk of imprisonment. And this amplifies the effect of any mental illness greatly for the person and for their families. Okay. So the biggest deficit, in addition to mental health services, I guess, um, the, the, the largest deficit is in terms of social care and we we have a very low rate of involuntary admission or sectioning here in Ireland and a low number of inpatient psychiatric beds, which is a good response to a very difficult past. Mm. However, it comes at a cost. People with mental illness who are homeless, people with mental illness in prison and lots of people with mental illness out there at home may be too ill to accept treatment, but not ill enough to meet the rigorous criteria for treatment without consent. So we have a lot to do in terms of services and in terms of the uh, if you like, the social surroundings and the the way we treat people with mental illness in society more generally. We'd probably, and my last question to you is this, we probably would like to think that um, talking about mental illness, particularly if you are somebody with a mental illness, has become less taboo and much more socially normal to talk about. Um, you've You've written now your travels through the history of mental illness. Here we are in 2022. Do you think that taboo uh, still exists? Um or do you think we're just trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves by saying it doesn't exist? <laughs> I, th- I think the taboo exists. Mm. We are better at talking about these things. Real progress has been made and real progress has been made in services as well. But we do have a good distance to go yet. The experience of severe psychological suffering or mental illness is still an isolating one, a lonely one and a stigmatised one for very many people. So while it's good we talk about it, talk about the depression, the anxiety and so forth, we need to broaden that conversation that little bit more to more severe depression bipolar disorder, schizophrenia and other conditions um, that maybe we're, we're a little too anxious to talk about, but we shouldn't be so anxious. All right. Well, look, thank you so much for your time this morning. We only scratched the surface of what is a fascinating um, look into the area of uh, mental illness through history. And uh, uh, we'll talk again, I've no doubt. Professor Brendan Kelly, Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College Dublin. Your book is called In Search of Madness, a Psychiatrist Travels Through the History of Mental Illness. Thanks for your time this morning. Thank you very nice much. Nice to see you. It's uh, eight minutes to ten. Mm-hmm.